We are so blessed to have you here. If you are here for the first time, we, we thank the Lord for you. We ask God's blessings upon you and certainly upon all who are here today. It's always a joy to be together in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see what is happening in the world today, of course, the first thing that we remember is that the Lord said that in the last days, perilous times would come. Well, Paul said that, but, but the Lord meant that certainly when he said in, 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 in Matthew 24 that the, the times of the end were going to be very, very distinct and the things were going to be happening in, in tremendous ways. Uh, there was, would be a lot of deception in the land. There would be a lot of, of hatred. One thing that that we do see that it says that uh, that there would be a, a rise in, in iniquities or lawlessness and because of that the love of many would wax cold and so my encouragement to you before we get into the message this morning my encouragement is realize the importance of the fellowship of the saints the fellowship of those who are believers in Jesus Christ because if the world sees anything about the love of Jesus, it has to be through us. It has to come from us. And so, let's always keep that every day at the forefront of, of, of our witness and our testimony. This morning, I, I'd love to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 2. That the text that we're going to be uh, dealing with is of the last part of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2, of course, had to do with the very beginnings of the public ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was invited to a wedding, a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and it was there that he revealed his glory, the glory of, of one who was almighty and powerful in the changing of water into wine. The middle section of chapter 2, which we dealt with last time, had to do with, with Jesus going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And I mentioned this last time that Jesus knew this already, but when He walked into the, into the area that was called the Court of the Gentiles, outside of the temple proper, there he saw this, uh, this corruption that was being done in the selling of, of uh, the animals, of uh, the, the, the sheeps and the goats and the cattle and, and even doves for the very poor uh, to offer sacrifices. In other words, they were this, uh, these tables of mediation for the sake of worship, but they were using God and using worship for their own gain. And there were the tables of the money changers where they were uh, giving such high rates of exchange for, for the Roman and Greek coins so that they would have the temple tax and so on and so forth. And Jesus would see all of this stuff happening. And the next thing that was revealed in Jesus was his zeal, his zeal for the house of God. And he said to these money changers, who by the way, and I didn't mention this last week, but, but actually it wasn't just the money changers and the people who were selling the animals, but the corruption was actually coming from all of the priests or those that served in the temple that were actually receiving kickbacks for all of the things that were being sold in the tables. 
And this is one reason why Jesus said what he said when he said, you have turned my father's house into a place of merchandise. Today we're going to deal with the response to that action of Jesus. And that begins in verse 18 of our text. So let's, let's turn there. And then answered the Jews. They're answering not only what he did, but what he said. So keep, in, uh, keep that in mind. In other words, what he had said about his father's house. And then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. And when therefore he was risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So the private ministry of Jesus then had certainly come to an end after his baptism, and his somewhat public ministry had launched in Cana of Galilee. And I say say somewhat public because, of course, not everybody knew what happened that day except his mother and his disciples and and as well the... uh, uh, the, the one who was in charge of the wedding and all of that and the servers. But there was no better place or suitable place to start a fully public ministry than in Jerusalem and that during the most familiar feast of Passover. And, and I find it very significant that Jesus would begin that ministry there because at that time because Passover really was all about Jesus coming to be the Lamb of God, to be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of men. But the importance of the incident of cleansing the temple can never be overstated or even overestimated in understanding Jesus' ministry because it was a definite offer and presentation to the nation of His authority. And when it was rejected, because we know it would be rejected, he would eventually gather and separate his disciples. But the one thought running through the whole passage here, and that that is what we saw last time, is is the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what he did in Jerusalem is symbolic of his attitude toward the souls of men. And I hope that we see that as we go on this morning. The initial response then truly was that of his disciples in verse 17. Because in verse 17, their response, even though it wasn't a verbal response, was a response nonetheless to the things that Jesus did in overturning the tables and and cleansing the temple. It says his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. They remembered the the messianic psalm, Psalm 69, that pointed out the jealousy of the Messiah toward his father's sanctuary in the midst of his people. This tells us a lot about the disciples. It tells us that they were men of the word of God. It tells us that they understood and knew the word of God. And possibly even better than the, uh, the priests and all of the servants of the, of, the, uh, of the temple at the time. And you'll see that in just a moment. 
But they were also looking for Messiah, and this was a messianic psalm that they, that they realized had become fulfilled in their midst, right in front of them. There was, there was still, and something for us to understand as well of the time, there was still a, a godly remnant in Israel that would have understood what Jesus said and meant. For they still love God, and they revered His temple. But the problem stemmed from many of the religious leaders who were false shepherds and were exploiting the people. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, he was declaring war on those hypocritical leaders and this ultimately would lead to his death. And so the religious authorities were not long in reacting to Jesus' actions. So the first initial response, of course, as I said, was the, was the um, disciples who remembered what Jesus, or what the psalm had said about what had just happened in, in front of them. The second reaction was actually the Jewish authorities. They wanted an immediate response, or they wanted a, an immediate explanation of what was going on. But, but it wasn't just about asking the question, who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you the right to overturn the temples? More than that, who gave you the right to be able to proclaim you have turned my father's house into a house of merchandise? So the question was really about asking, what sign showest thou unto us? What sign will you show us seeing that you do these things? They were demanding a sign because Jesus did everything to show that He was Messiah. Zeal for God's house. That was a sign. But now they wanted another sign. And they demanded a sign. They challenged Him to work some miracle in order to attest, to his, to attest his authority. Remember now that Jesus had claimed, as I said, that the temple was his father's. In other words, they knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that Jesus cleansed the temple in the way that he did. They wanted more. You ever run into people when you tell them about Jesus and you make so clear the gospel to them and you make so clear what the response should be in their lives toward the, uh, toward the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet they, they, they say, well, you know what, give me more. They don't take what you tell them just initially or they don't take what you tell them in, 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 in more of a full sense of procla- proclamation of the gospel. They said, well, that's nice, but give me more. What more do you need? There's Jesus on the cross. He died for you. Look at all the blood that He shed. He, bl- he shed it on behalf of your, uh, on your behalf for your sins. He rose again from the dead. What more do you need? Give me more. It is significant that the Apostle Paul would later underline this demand of the Jews for signs as being characteristic of an unbelieving people. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, uh, I'm sorry, verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. When you read all of this in context, you realize what he's saying is, if you're requiring a sign and you're requiring wisdom, you don't believe. 
The more you require these things, the less you believe. So the Lord gave them a sign. You say, He did? Yes, He gave them a sign. But it wasn't one they really wanted. And neither did they understand it. What was the sign? Listen to what He said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. That's the sign. Now what you need to understand about the statement that Jesus makes. He says, you destroyed this temple. That's what's implied here. Just as in an, in an English statement, destroy this temple, you know, we, 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 we have the word you that's, that's understood there. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. The last phrase, raise it again, is, is, a, is a Greek word, one Greek word that means to rouse from sleep. And when you see this word in the New Testament, 70 times that that word is, is used, it is used for resurrection. So... What does Jesus say? I'll give you a sign. You destroy this temple. Who took him to the cross? Well, in a sense, we all did. But they did. The religious leaders. And then he said, but in three days, I'll raise it again. That very statement, now listen again what he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Pretty, pretty clear? Pretty simple? Alright, so the same statement was used on two successive occasions later on, in fact, during the trials of Jesus as a basis for accusation and both times it was misquoted. Take for example Matthew 26 verse 61. So they're at the house of Caiaphas where they're there to accuse Jesus of of blasphemy and all the things that he ever said. So they said of this one guy, uh, or this one person I should say, said, this fellow said, speaking of Jesus, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now is that what Jesus said? (laughs) He didn't say that, did he? At least not here in the text of John. Because in John's text it says, destroy this temple... That he's speaking of his own body. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll, I'll build it up. But he, never, he didn't say, I am able to destroy the temple of God. He's misquoted. Jesus was misquoted. Take Mark chapter thir- uh, 14, verse 58. We heard him say, again, during these accusations in the trials of Jesus, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Did Jesus say that? No. They misquoted him. More than likely on purpose they misquoted him, but nonetheless they misquoted him. Because that's not what he said and that is not what he meant. And I bring this up and I, and I, and I draw a lot of attention to it because I want you to realize the importance of knowing what God says in His Word and what Jesus says in the Gospels and what the Apostles say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Epistles. 
and what the prophets say in the Hebrew scriptures. We need to realize and know what they say and never misquote them. You know that classic statement that people say, Hey, you've read it in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Can somebody show that to me in the scriptures? Because it's not there. That's the Bible according to somebody else. And this is what I mean. We need to be people of the Word of God. And the disciples actually were people of the Word of God. When Jesus did what He did, they remembered the Scriptures. They said, whoa, this is Messiah. Because He just fulfilled Psalm 69 verse 9. So what did Jesus mean then? When Jesus said it to the religious authorities, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again, He was referring to the fact that His body, the temple, and by the way, and this is so important, He word the, he used the, the, the um, Greek word naos, N-A-O-S, for temple, which literally means the sanctuary. The sanctuary. Where do we meet God? What did Paul teach us in his epistles about us, about the bodies, our bodies? Actually, in, in, in First and Second Corinthians, in, in the books of Corinthians. That the, temp, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is the temple. You know, the body belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to us. So remember that in your life. But it's the sanctuary where we meet God every day. And we should. And we should desire it. And we should want more of it each and every day. So he uses a word that deals with sanctuary. And this is the reason why Jesus, in his righteous indignation and anger, upturned the the tables of the money changers and, and of all of the merchandisers. So he was referring to the fact that his body, the naos, would be handed over to them to destroy. By the way, when when he said that, destroy this temple, uh, you know, I'm not much into imagination. I mean, you know, but, but I would have to almost believe that when Jesus said it, he didn't say destroy this temple because what would he have been referring to? The temple there, the Herod's temple. He may have very possibly done destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. But they didn't pay attention to that if, they, if Jesus did that at all. But Jesus just said it very clearly and plainly and John makes it clear that, the, that what he meant was his body was the temple. <clears throat> so he would be handed over to them eventually and when that happened he would raise it up. So Jesus not only prophesies his resurrection, but he also gives the timing of the resurrection. He says, three days after this body is destroyed, three days later, I'll raise it up. 
And so he says that he will do the raising. Now this is a, another important thing that we need to kind of, it's, it's just a little side uh, a lesson, but it's an important lesson. Because we believe in one God in three persons. We believe in a triune God, as, as, uh, one God in three persons. We call it the Trinity and all, but, but here's the proof of that. And this is one of the proofs, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we see that Jesus said, I will raise it again. In other words, destroy this body and I will raise it again. But let's look at proof of a triune God. Because in Romans 10 verse 9, we are told that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God, and the inference here is that God being God the Father, God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So now we have Jesus raising himself from the dead in, in, in John chapter 2, Romans chapter 10 verse 9, God raises Jesus from the dead. And if you go back one chapter in Romans chapter 8 verse 11, it says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So now the spirit is a part of the action of raising Jesus from the dead. So Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father took action along with Jesus to raise him from the dead. And the Spirit was a part of the action that was done to raise Jesus from the dead. One God in three persons. Proof in the resurrection. All right. That's a free lesson. So, what did Jesus then say? If you want a sign... Let me give you one. The sign was the resurrection. The sign was the resurrection. So what did the religious authorities do in reply? uh, Or I should say in response to Jesus' reply. Well, they took his word at face value. But that wasn't good because they failed to discern the Lord's metaphor. He was giving them a metaphor. John uh, 2 verse 20 it says then said the Jews to him 40 and 6 years in other words 46 years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in 3 days well let's look at history Herod the Great who had been an avid builder had begun renovations of the Jewish temple in 20 BC alright you all following along here 20 BC BC of course means before the birth of Christ as it were alright Nowadays they use BCE before the common era. So 20 BC, Herod began the work, Herod the Great began the work of the renovations of the Jewish temple. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that some 1800 workmen were employed in that task. 46 years later would have brought the day to around 27 or 28 AD. But the work on the whole complex actually continued until around 63 A.D. So when Jesus began his public ministry, though the temple was already constructed and, and, and the usage of the temple was, was already, uh, uh, things were being done for the sacrifices and all of that, there were still other sections of the temple that were being built until 63 A.D., which I find to be very significant because seven years after that, think about this, Think how significant this is. Seven years after the temple is completed in 63 AD, it is destroyed again 
by the Romans. Which caused the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jews into all the world. And in that diaspora, so was the Christian Jewish population taking the gospel to the whole world. An interesting thing, isn't it? Seven years after that temple was completed. But the answer of those religious leaders to Jesus was emphatically contemptuous in tone. It was contemptuous in tone when they said, And will you? I mean, this thing has been, you know, 46 years, it's been building, and you're going to raise it again? You? That's how the, the you know, the, the, the language here is, is, is describing their, their contempt toward the Lord. And even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand his mysterious saying at first. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. They didn't understand it. Because it took the light of the resurrection to actually to illuminate it. The reason is that early on, they didn't see the need for his death. They didn't see the need for Jesus to die. Because all along, they had this concept that the Messiah was going to come as a military leader and take on the Romans and defeat the Romans and give them freedom from that oppression. They didn't see the need for his death. Jesus would tell them time and time again. And it's so interesting when you read this part of the, of the Gospels where he, where he talks, about, uh, talks to them about him coming to die. He would say to his disciples alone, he would gather them and he said, Listen, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be arrested, and they're going to beat me, so I'm going to suffer. And then they're going to nail me to a cross. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. First time he told them. Okay. Right? Wonderful, wonderful response. They said, huh? What? He would tell them again. I'm going to be taken, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, they're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead. What? Did he say, dead? He's going to die? What? He would tell them again. Then they become, become sorrowful, even though he would say, but I'm going to rise again. Oh, what's wrong with these guys? The same thing that's wrong with us. We don't pay attention to what Jesus says. But he's so patient to teach us. So patient to make sure that we get it. I don't want any show of hands, but how many of us have sat in churches years and years until we finally got it and we thought, why did it take so long? Right? Why did it take so long? Are you praying? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you living for Christ? Are you being a witness for the Lord? 
There's a lot of factors here that we need him for every day of our lives. We, we need to understand that here. So that's why in verse 22, it says, Therefore, when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said that unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. But when? They believed it after. See, they remembered after. It doesn't need to be that way for us. I mean, they didn't even understand the scriptures which speaks of the, of the Messiah's suffering and death. They didn't understand Isaiah 53. I'm just going to give you a portion of it, at verses uh, 3 through 9. Listen to what it says. He is despised and rejected of, man, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In this, verse, in this one verse alone... The concept of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in the mindset of the Jewish people today, but it's been for a long time, but the mindset of the Jewish people today is that the suffering servant is Israel, but it cannot be. It cannot be Israel simply because you can't have somebody who is despised or rejected of men and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and then say we hid as it were our faces from him because then we need to understand who we is. The we is Israel. The he is Messiah. There's no other way to see it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Practically everything, I mean everything that is said in these verses that I'm sharing with you this morning have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Every one of them. And it doesn't even stop here. Look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. He was the pure Lamb of God. And when he died he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, fulfilled by Jesus Christ. It was on the Emmaus Road, after the death of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus made this statement after his resurrection to two of his disciples who are walking on the road of Emmaus after the resurrection. They're walking very dejected, very, you know, like, wow. The things that have happened this weekend, the things that have happened this this uh, uh, Passover, uh, amazing things that happened to Jesus, and Jesus comes alongside of them and he speaks with them. Well, eventually, and we we all read Luke twenty four, but there in Luke twenty four verses twenty five to twenty seven, notice what he says to them. 
But eventually now he wants to get their attention. He says, uh, then he said unto them, O fools. Now, I got to tell you, Jesus says that with so much love and affection. O fools. You do know that he told us not to call each other fools, so don't do that. But he can do it. And in his great love and tenderness and mercy, he says, Oh, fools. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ, the Mashiach, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Didn't you read Isaiah 53? Didn't you read that scroll? And beginning, and so what does he do in verse 27? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets. In other words, can you imagine the Bible study that he gave to these disciples? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets. In other words, Moses and all of the Old Testament. All of the whole of what was scripture at that time. He expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what happened when he finally does this? Their eyes are open. Their eyes were open. And so Jesus revealed his zeal by cleansing the temple and by giving his life. That is what that statement was. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. He expressed his zeal by giving his life. His zeal for the Father's house. And so, in Cana, he revealed his glory and the power of his glory. In Jerusalem, he revealed the the glory of his zeal for the Father's house. And now, after this confrontation with the religious leaders of Jerusalem, he reveals his knowledge. Let's look at the last part of the, of the chapter. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Stop and ask yourself, is that a good thing? Think about what I just asked. Because it does say... When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles which he did. Well, that sounds good. Don't take it at face value. Because look at the next verse. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, it has well been said that a faith that rests upon miracles is not a saving faith. Now, that might burst some of your bubbles, but that's okay. Because a faith that rests upon miracles is not a saving faith. Did you hear what I said? It's not a saving faith. A faith that rests upon signs and wonders does not bring salvation to anyone. This is probably one good reason why it isn't worthwhile for us to debate with unbelievers about their objections to the inspiration of the scriptures. 
Time and time again. And even Paul would tell Timothy, listen, be, be careful. You know, don't, don't go into all these arguments and stuff. This is what God called us to do. Look at what it says in Mark 16 verse 15. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every preacher. What's, what's the important point here? Preach the gospel to every creature. That's, that's the command given to the church. Preach the gospel to every creature. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. Because here Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. What is the key understanding here? It is the preaching of the cross. What is at the center of the gospel that we are to preach to every creature? The cross of Jesus Christ. It is foolishness to the world. But that's not for us to worry about. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit and God sends us out to preach the gospel, the center of that gospel has to be the cross of Jesus Christ because without the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. If we do not believe that Jesus died on our behalf, then what saves us? The cross has to be at the very center of our preaching of the gospel. Because he says, but unto us which are saved, we are saved by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go one step further. Let's look at Paul's statement in Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, it, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So to everyone, to the Jew and the Greek, which represents everyone else. It is the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus came to die on behalf of men's sins. That is what we are to preach. There's no salvation outside of the name of Jesus Christ. So we have to let people know what Jesus Christ came to do. Now, the Lord gives miracles to authenticate the word. He did that. We see that throughout the scriptures, especially in the book of Acts. We see it in, to some extent in the, in the, in the gospels. Uh, sometimes there, there's references to that in the, in the uh, epistles of the apostles. But primarily the Lord gives miracles to authenticate the word. But faith must rest on something far better than miracles. And by the way, do we believe in miracles? We should. Why? Because we have a God who is the God of the impossible. We can say that nothing is impossible with God. Or we can say that all things are possible with God. As every believer should believe in their hearts. But here, we, here were people waiting for the Messiah to come. And so they said, well now if Messiah came, could he do any more miracles than Jesus did? I mean, then he must be the one of whom the prophets have spoken. In that sense, they believed that he was Messiah, but they didn't confess that they were guilty souls in need of salvation, and they didn't see Jesus, the Savior, whom they needed. So what did they ask for? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Okay, give us another sign. Nice. Okay, give us another sign. When did that stop? 
So now, I want you to, again, look at your text. And look at what it says there in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. And we say, well, isn't that good? But then look at the next thing. They believed in his name when they saw the miracles, but the rest of the passage, verse 24, tells us that Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, I'm going to, uh, we're coming to a wow statement here. Wow, W-O-W. Got it? All right, we're coming to a wow statement. The words, believe, in verse 23, and commit, in verse 24 are the same words in the Greek language and in the original text. The same word. So it can be read this way. Many believed in His name, but Jesus did not believe in them. Wow. Had you ever thought of it in those terms? Part of the problem is we don't Consider much what the word commit means. Yet, that's exactly what the text reads. Many believed in Him and in His name, but Jesus did not believe in them. Any of you here this morning? Are you still here? We're almost done. Are you all still here? Was there an impact there? So I, I might have missed it. I, I can see it on the other services. Wow. Okay. What else will it take for you to be wowed here? What does it mean that he didn't believe in them? He did not trust or believe in the people. He didn't commit himself into their lives or into their hands. The verb, in fact, commit, is a continuous action. It is written in a a tense of continuous action. Jesus, in other words, kept on refusing to trust men and to commit himself into their lives. One problem that many people have today is they say that they believe in Jesus, they believe in the name of Jesus, but they haven't made a commitment to him yet. Do you understand now the essential of understanding commitment? You cannot say, I believe in Jesus, but I I, I haven't yet made a commitment. Well, then you don't believe in Jesus. You don't really trust Him. Because if you did, you would commit your whole life to Him. That is what you do when you come to Christ. You commit your whole life as if to say you have put the every weight of your life, every weight of your uh, of every fiber of your being, your thoughts and your emotions and your actions on him. You commit yourself to Jesus Christ. And until you do that, you can't that you just that you say you believe in his name is not enough. How do we know that? This is not going to be up here, so you have to turn in your Bibles to James 2, verse 19. Turn to James 2.19. It's right after the book of Hebrews. 
James 2.19. Y'all there? I like to do that because sometimes I just like to hear that you have your Bibles and you're flipping the pages. I can hear it and I need a little breeze anyway, so. All right. Still warm up here, so I guess the pages aren't moving too too far. Okay, anyway. Uh, uh, Second chapter of James, verse 19. He says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Notice what he says. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils also believe. The demons, in other words. You say you believe in one God? Well, you do well. Well, the demons believe also, and they tremble. The implication is, they tremble, but you don't tremble. They're not going to be saved. They're demons. They're going to be judged. Yet they believe. So the question is, to what ascent do you believe? Do you only believe in your mind? In the, in, in the, in the, uh, uh, the fact that Jesus actually did exist? Because, you know, there's some people who don't believe that, even, that Jesus even existed. So if you believe in Jesus and you believe in one God, well, you, you do well. But so do the, de- the demons. They believe that too. And they're not saved. So there has to be the, uh, something beyond the mental ascent of a person that says, it's not about just what I believe up here in my mind. It's what I believe in my heart and in my spirit because I have a spiritual life now that came alive when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I have this life now. So now my belief and my trust in the Lord has to be greater than just my thought of knowing that there's a God. Because then we're only up to the level of the demons. We have to go beyond that. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when I say that Jesus, you know, the people believe because they saw the miracles, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because he didn't believe that they had come to that place where they were ready to commit themselves fully and totally to him. So with that in mind then, how did Jesus know this? Well, he knows everything. I know that that's a simple answer. But not a, not a person escaped from his knowledge. Secondly, he knew what was in man, we're told there in verse 25. He knew what was in man. No one needed to tell him about man. He knew man's nature. He knew his depravity and his evil and his deception and his fickleness. He knew what was in man. He knows what is in us right now. You might be able to hide it from one another. You can hide it from me, but that's okay. You know what? God knows you. He knows you. He knows what you're struggling with. We try to put on a happy face. Because we don't want to upset anybody. We don't burn anybody. But you know what? The Lord knows what's there. The Lord knows what you're struggling with this morning. And He knows what you've done. You know, all these things you can hide from others. You can't hide it from Him. The fact of the matter is, He loves you too much for you not to go to Him and entrust Him with all of these things. As we'll talk about in just a moment. So He knew men that He could trust and could not trust because nothing was hidden from Him. And 
by the way, there were those that he could trust. Because he had entrusted his spirit to them. He had entrusted his word to them. He had entrusted his life to them. Therefore, he was not able to commit himself and his blessings to some men, despite the fact that they professed to believe. And the problem is that today, we try to understand people, we try to know people by what we see, but we have to be very careful. Because God knows what's in the heart. Take, for example, the, the, the time that uh, God sent Samuel to, to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And he sends him there so that, uh, because out of that particular family, he told Samuel, the next king of Israel is going to come. So there he is, Samuel is with Jesse, and Jesse says, okay, get all my boys together, and he lines them all up, and, uh, and he says, yeah, you know, uh, he goes to this whole parade of guys in front of him, they're all big and strong and handsome, and, and they probably even smell good, you know, whatever. But, you know, they all go through this whole list, you know, and Samuel keeps seeing it, do you have any, you have any more? Yeah, well, there's David, but he stinks, he's out there with a sheep, you know, and he's... Well, eventually we'll get to David, but there was, there was one uh, brother of his, Eliab. When he got to Eliab, this is, this is when <clears throat> this, this particular verse comes up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Because they're looking at these guys, they're all, they're all, you know, they're all on the outside pretty good. But then it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The Lord sees our hearts. And the Lord is seeing our hearts today, right now, this very moment. Nothing we can hide. We can hide it from one another, but we can't hide it from Him. And this brings us to the table of communion this morning. There are three things that we want to remember at the Lord's table. First of all, we are to remember what happened, what these symbols represent. Christ's death on the cross, which means that our sins are are once for all purged and washed away. We should rejoice in that. Amen? Christ's death on the cross means our sins are once for all purged and washed away. So we look to the past for something that was done on our behalf. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we remember what is still coming. The Lord is coming back for us. That is part of this communion service today. He's going to take us home to heaven where we will be forever free from sin and the effects of sin. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more disappointment. Some of us should be rejoicing right now for that. There's been too much sorrow, too much pain, too much disappointment in some of our lives. But the promise is Jesus is coming to take us home. We will be complete and relieved and in fullness of joy. So our communion today points us to the coming of Jesus again. But thirdly, when we partake in the bread of the cup, we are to presently, right this moment, look within our own hearts and evaluate our relationship and our fellowship with our God who saved us and is coming for us. Because you see, self-evaluation is essential in the Christian life. Self-evaluation is essential in the Christian life. Please look at 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. Notice what Paul says. Examine yourselves 
whether you be in the faith, whether you believe beyond the mental ascent to a deeper trust. That's what faith is. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? And by the way, what he's saying here is, listen, don't you know that Jesus is already in you? Unless you are one of the disqualified, one of the reprobates. The next verse is really the encouragement here. He says, but I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. Trust that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're not disqualified. You are a sinner. You are one who goes through struggles and trials. Sometimes you stumble over yourself. Sometimes you stumble over other things. But God is always there to pick us up. God is always there to convict us through His Holy Spirit to come back to Him. So, you know, we have the blessing of that. So we know that we're not the disqualified here. Unless we are. Then you need to come to Jesus. You understand that? But then if we look at the, 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 the verse of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, dealing with communion, notice what Paul says after he describes what he was to give to the church about the day that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and the cup. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, a lot of times people worry about this, and maybe sometimes for good reason. But the, but the point is that he had already described in the first part of chapter 11 that the church had really just abused the table of communion, where they were gathering together, and it had become more of a party spirit, a party attitude, and they were not really focusing their attention upon the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as they should have been. In a sense, they were then taking this unworthily. But notice what he says in verse 28. But let a man examine himself. So that's where we are today. We are giving you the opportunity to examine yourselves. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. This is why I say take the cup and the bread, but examine yourselves. To see that you're in the faith. So here's the connection to the first part of chapter of this chapter in John, actually the second part, the middle part. When Jesus said to the dove sellers, he said, you take these things hence. In other words, you take these things out of here. You take them out of here. And and remember that I said last week that Jesus wants us to partner with him in cleansing our temple, in cleansing our temple. He wants us to partner with him. It isn't just him that's going to clean us out. We have to do the sweeping. And by the way, don't sweep under the rug. Sweep everything out of the house. Sweep everything out of the temple. Get it out of the way so that nothing gets in the way of our devotion, our worship, our praise, and our adoration of Jesus Christ. You all understand that? Okay. So we are to sweep out the leaven from every corner of our lives and do not forget our God has a passionate and a zeal and a love for us 
and He desires to repair and to restore any area of our lives that need it, that's what the examination is for. He already knows, but He wants us to check our hearts. And then He wants us to lay these things down. Lay your burdens down. And Jesus said, I'll lift you up. So let's go to the table of communion in a time of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for taking us from the understanding of cleansing to clarity, to, to be clear about our need to understand faith and trust and commitment to you. I pray, Father, that we will truly examine our hearts this morning because there are things that we need to lay down before you. And we can't do it alone, so we have to trust in you. So, Lord, give us a better understanding and a better concept of this belief and commitment. I pray, Father, that your Spirit will move upon us now in a mighty way. In Jesus' name. Amen.